Good afternoon. Slash evening. Is it evening or afternoon? Evening. Happy hour. <laughs> Good. I'll take that. Um, hey, welcome to Formation. This is, uh, who has been to Formation on a, we've, we've done a Wednesday night Formation on and off over the last couple of years. Who's been a part of any of those? Oh, nice, nice one. And there's a few of you who I'm uh, going to guess from that are either shy or have not been. Too shy to put your hand up. Um, my name is Michael. And, oh, Frosty, um, Michael Frost. And um, I'm going to be just uh, coordinating the conversation tonight, which is good. Um, I just want to say a few things about formation and what this space is or what our hopes for this space uh, is uh, a little bit before we get into some content and some discussion and some conversation tonight. Uh, one of the first things you'll notice if you... This is a Sunday gathering, but we, aren't, we haven't done any singing at this stage and I've already started talking. So um, if you are preparing yourself to get into a rousing um, survey of edge worship hits together, um, we're going to get more just sort of straight to, to the talky, talky bits, uh, generally speaking, in formation, which is uh, going to be fun. Uh, I hope for this space is that we get a chance to talk through some some ideas, um, some of the theology that sits behind our lives, um, some of the big ideas that we wrestle with as people trying to figure out what does this Jesus thing have to do with my life in Aotearoa 2,000 years after Jesus was cruising around? Um, what does, what place does spirituality hold in our lives? in a world which is moving pretty rapidly? Um, do these ideas still matter? Uh, what ideas that sit within the Christian tradition are helpful to us? Uh, what might we want to re-examine? Uh, and how does this all actually impact on our, our real everyday lives? So that's, that's part of the hope for the space. The reason we call it formation is because what I think we don't want this to be is just... Uh, very abstract conversation about some ideas out there somewhere that might be interesting but not necessarily important to how we actually live. Um, instead, we want these conversations to be a part of our own formation as humans, fully alive, learning what it is to flourish in life uh, and what place God has in that uh, what place does our spirituality have in that? So that's a bit of what we hope this space will continue to be. Um, one of the things that will happen uh, is that we will uh, encourage uh, more dialogue. So it's not just going to be uh, someone talking at you the whole time, although there will be a bit of talking from, from people up the front. Um, but the change to this space, in a way, is is symbolic of the fact that that we want this conversation to be one that we have together. So there's going to be times where we uh, discuss, where we want back and forth. Uh, the format will um, change a little bit from time to time, depending on what we're hoping to achieve. Sometimes there'll be more Q&A, sometimes there'll be panel conversations, sometimes there'll be more group discussion, uh, depending on what it is we're talking about and what the best way we think to talk about that might be. Um, 
in doing that, one of the things we also want to uphold is a sense of mutual uh, respect for one another. So in that conversation, um, I don't think the aim for any of us, including those of us who are, who are talking with microphones, um, the aim is not to uh, use this and seize this as our opportunity to finally tell everyone what they should be doing and thinking um, or to do so with a lack of respect for the other. And so we have a really diverse community in many ways with lots of different ideas. And we want this to be a space where we can actually be honest and authentic about what we really truly think about things, including uh, things we might struggle with or wrestle with or have big questions about. Um, and so we want the space to be a safe one where people feel that they can actually be honest without um, someone throwing a Bible at them or something else. So um, is that cool? Does that make sense? Yeah. Um, there is uh, a couple other things I want to say before we just uh, before we dive into it. Uh, one is that uh, I'd love for this to be a space for creativity, and so for those of you who are, well, creativity can mean all sorts of things, I suppose. Perhaps we need a series on creativity uh, before I use that word. But um, if you are the kind of person who creates, whether it's words, art, poems, music, whatever it might be. Um, if there are things that you, I'd encourage you to think about whether or not there's things you can create along the way that actually might, that could be added to the space and to the conversation. So we want to create some time and some space along the way for people to be able to bring forward stuff that maybe they've created that can contribute to the conversation or just express some of what we've been talking about. It might be a song, might be a, I don't know what it might be. You can decide that. Is that cool? Um, so... If you're kind of that way inclined um, and you're feeling that vibe and that vibe comes upon you and uh, you respond to it by doing something, then do come and have a chat and we'll see if there's ways we can weave that into what it is that we're doing and saying. Because we don't want this just to be an intellectual conversation but to be in some way an embodied whole body experience. Whatever that might mean. <laughs> Sounds a bit creepy. But I don't mean it in a creepy way. I mean it in a wonderful way. Um, because we're on every fortnight, uh, well, one of the reasons, we're on every fortnight. And uh, if that really throws you, because you're going to go, oh, what week are we? Uh, one of the ways you can keep up to, that, up to date with that is to follow Edge Formation on Instagram, if you're an Instagrammer, all right? So there is, so the handle... I think that's what we call it, hey? And the, the social media landscape uh, is edge formation. So you can follow that. And there'll be a few things that come up there, links to some stuff or some, some quotes and ideas and images, but also uh, it will remind you when we're actually on and when we're not. Um, but also I look around the room and I see people who are fully capable of um, thinking about fortnights. That's what I reckon. <laughs> Um, so, but yes, uh, there'll be stuff through the Edge Facebook and we'll obviously talk about it on Sunday mornings as well, but Edge Formation is another way to, on Instagram is another way to keep up to date with that. Or you can talk to a real person in real life and ask them, chances are they'll know. Um, we're going to eat together afterwards, which is cool. Uh, so we'll do that every fortnight at Formation as well. So that's a chance to just sit together and continue to chat and have convo, and uh, that's in some ways our Eucharist at Formation, 
is our meal after our conversation. Um, so that's nice too. I think all those are most of the things I have to remember at this stage. Everyone all right? Yeah? Great. Well, should we get into it then? Let's do it. Oh, the other thing I was going to say, because for people who have been to formation before, you'll remember notes. Uh, what we're going to do is we are going to change it up a little bit. So there's going to be a blog that will come out that will summarise our content for each week. So that will come out post-Sunday post when we have formation. Uh, so that'll come out. Again, you'll see the links through that through Instagram or Facebook or on the website for Edge. Cool? Uh, so if you're thinking, ah, what did we talk about? Um, then you can look that up. Also useful because we are going to be tracking through some series that if you aren't here for some reason, but you want to keep up with the conversation, uh, then that's an easy way to do it. Cool? All right. Got a clicker, eh? Clicker somewhere? Here it is. So, uh, we're starting a series tonight. Good time to start, first week. Oh, oh yes, I've got to do this first. Hold the line. <laughs> I said to Greg I was going to try and um, do my talk tonight without notes. As you can see how well it's going. Um, I've got a prayer I'd like us to stand, and I'm going to, actually I'm going to ask someone else to pray it. Um, it's a prayer by Michael Lunig, who's actually a cartoonist from Australia. Um, but I like this as an invitation into our space. So if you don't mind standing. Hannah, do you, would you mind reading it for us? Did you? Did you know? Oh, there you go. We pray for another way of being, another way of knowing. Across the difficult terrain of our existence, we have attempted to build a highway and in doing so have lost our footpath. God, lead us to our footpath. Lead us there where in simplicity we may move at the speed of natural creatures and feel the earth's love beneath our feet. Lead us where there where step by step we may feel the movement of creation in our hearts and lead us there where side by side we may feel the embrace of the common soul. Nothing can be loved at speed. God, lead us to the slow path, to the joyous insights of the pilgrim. Another way of knowing, another way of being. Amen. Thank you, Hannah. Amen. You can sit down again. Got to think through the, uh, the height of the people ratio versus the height of the words, don't we? But thank you. Uh, one of the reasons I really like this prayer is I think um, in formation, it's an invitation to slow down a little bit and work our way through a conversation. Uh, and so hopefully each week when we come and talk together, you know, that night will be something in itself to talk about. But also we want to connect these together and, and move our way through a conversation and not feel like we have to come to all of the conclusions at the end of the first step. Um, but to allow ourselves to slow down uh, nothing can be loved at speed. I like that idea. Maybe car racing can be, but um, I think car racing. Does anyone even call it car racing? I don't reckon I, I'm, I do live in Henderson, but. Um, so there's this invitation to slow down into the conversation and to take our time a little bit with what we want to talk about. 
We are starting a series, and some of you will know this because you'll have bumped into things, called this, What on Earth Did Jesus Die For? It's a good question, I think, um, which is why we're doing it. Um, And one of the reasons I think this question matters is because the story of Jesus obviously lies right at the heart of the Christian faith. Um, Christ, Christians, right? Um, But... What lies at the heart of that story? What is that story really about? And at times through the tradition of the church, uh, there, are, there have been different ways of understanding uh, what's really going on in this story. And in particular, thinking through um, the death and resurrection of Jesus. Now, this is an event that occurs a couple of thousand years ago. And there are all sorts of ways of understanding that then, um, but sometimes they get a little lost in translation. Uh, And there are all sorts of provocative images that we get very used to as people who have been around Christian church for a while, but that in some ways are kind of disturbing or strange. There's a lot of blood (laughs) at the centre of the Christian story. And that can be something we get used to. I mean, I grew up singing about the blood of Jesus. Um, Wash me in the blood. Um, I was at Shakespeare. Have you been, anyone been to the Pop-Up Globe? Uh, Shakespeare and Ellerslie? It's a tremendous experience. Went to Midsummer Night's... Oh, yes, I see that hand. Uh, Midsummer Night's Dream a couple of weeks ago, and there's this scene in it where someone uh, gets stabbed and and they, uh, they've got fake blood that splatters out across the stage, and there was this girl who was standing right up the front, and it just hit her right on the forehead, and just her whole face was streaming with blood. Um, kind of gross. Um, and we kind of, we, we um, spiritualise that language perhaps in some kind of way that um, removes us from the kind of weirdness of that imagery, right? What is it? Sort of sing about, we drink it. Oh, it's um, the the blood of Jesus. Um, what's going on there? Um, oh, precious is the flow. What's that old song? Um, that makes me white as snow. Something like that. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Um, the the death. Yes. Um, Um, and at the centre of of our Christian faith is an execution and that's a weird idea too so um, there's this guy bless you who, um, who gets executed and the cross which is a torture and it's, a, it's a designed to kill people painfully, stands like the thing, that's the thing we wear around our necks and the, and the thing we put up above our churches. Um, it's like kind of, I guess, having an electric chair um, hoisted at, at, above the doorway to the church. Um, but because we're so used to the imagery and it's become kind of, you know, it's become sanitized in a way for us over time, the shockingness of that imagery Uh, loses its way. I was thinking this week that certain understandings of Jesus' death demonstrate 
that many Christians, I, I think it's probably true, um, profoundly believe in human sacrifice. Uh, in that they believe that... Now, usually if you, um, if you think about a, a movie you watch and there's a human that's sacrificed. Who's, what kind of people are doing the sacrificing, generally speaking? Good people or bad people? Savages? <laughs> um, like if you, you know, if you were to imagine a, a sort of a, an innocent being sacrificed to the gods of some kind, um, you don't usually look at that and think, yeah, that's what Christianity is about. Um, and yet in some sense, uh, some understandings of what's going on in the Jesus story lead us to that point where um, the only reason we don't have to like, do a lot of blood at the front now is, is because Jesus was such a good human sacrifice um, that we don't need to keep doing it because he was like the best. He was, <laughs> you know? Um, so all of that swirls around for people and I think, Sometimes what it can do for, for people who, who follow the Christian faith, certain understandings of that story uh, can make people quite anxious about God. And so even on one level, it can feel like good news because maybe you get to go to heaven because you you've heard about it and you, you believe in it. On another level, it's like, what kind of God are we dealing with here uh, that needs the blood of a truly innocent man before he can really, you know, he's like, can't be just any old man. I need the blood of a really innocent one and then I can forgive everyone. Um, that's, a, that's a really interesting idea and I'm not sure how I feel about that. So um, uh, if you've been around Edge for a little while, uh, you'll know that that's not often the way we talk about <laughs> Jesus or the Jesus story. Um, we suggest that maybe there's something else going on in this story uh, that might be meaningful for us. And so that's kind of what this series is about. In some ways, it's if not that, then what? Because if, if that's not what's going on, then what is going on? And why does it even matter? Um, because I think it does matter. The, the, the story of Jesus, uh, in particular this climax of the story at Easter, the death and resurrection of Jesus, um, has profound meaning for us. Um, so we want to explore that together. So that's what we're, we're trying to do. Cool? Does it make sense? Yeah. Oh, great. My wife always tells me to stop asking that question. She says, you always ask if it makes sense. Don't ask. Just assume it does. Um, so there's, these are the, this is the series here, which we're going to be covering over the, over the next little while. So you can see there, once again, reinforcing the fortnightly nature of formation. The dates there happen every two weeks. And um, tonight we're going to talk about the metaphors of the atonement, uh, in a couple of weeks' time, we're going to talk about the circle of life. Uh, so that's really an invitation to consider how the death and resurrection of Jesus invites us into a way of being where there's a, there's a mystical sense in which we enter into that with Christ. Um, May the 6th, we're going to talk about God is dead. Uh, the idea that God enters into suffering and death in the story of Jesus. And what does that mean for us? The execution of a nonviolent revolutionary. Um, where we're going to look at notions of empire, we're going to look at violence, we're going to look at uh, Jesus' response to a violent empire and how that upsets all sorts of powerful people and the way in which that story might compel us to live and act in the world. 
Uh, on June 3rd, we're going to talk about scapegoats and the end of sacrifice, wherein I think uh, I'm going to suggest to you that Jesus' death on the cross is a rejection of the entire sacrificial system rather than an endorsement of it. Um, and then we're going to finish with a discussion around what is, what is the gospel in the light of all of that. Cool? So that's where we're going. I reckon that sounds good. Yeah. Um, the series after this, little teaser, well in advance, just to get you pumped for the whole year. Uh, we're going to talk about heaven, hell, uh, who the Antichrist is, and, uh, and when the rapture will be. So it's going to be fun too. Uh, rapture jokes. You can always tell people who've been around church long enough to get a rapture joke for, for other people. Uh, okay, so tonight we're going to talk about uh, the metaphors of the atonement uh, as a way of, I guess, really saying, well, how did we get to here? So we're not necessarily going to propose a bunch of new stuff tonight, but I do want us to explore the notion of how has the church made its way to where it is and how have the ideas uh, formed that many Christians think are the main ideas of, of the Jesus story uh, and see where that takes us. So there are two words here at play. Well, there's technically a few more, a couple more words, but I'm going to focus on metaphors and atonement. The thuses the and the ofs need less attention. Um, atonement is a word that in many ways, uh, it, well, itself is a metaphor, um, but is used quite a bit in Old Testament language. Uh, so when animal sacrifices were made, also usually done by the bad people in the movies, animal sacrifices. Um, the blood was spilled onto the, uh, some were called the mercy seat, sometimes it was the, the atonement cover, which is this plate of gold, which the blood would be splashed upon, whereupon the sins of the people would be cleansed or atoned for, and God would now no longer pour out his wrath against the people. So immediately we've got ourselves into difficult territory. Um, but this is one of the words that, um, one of the metaphors used in the New Testament to try and make sense of what's happening with Jesus. So straight away we're into blood and gore and death and sacrifice. So it's, it's good. The second word here is really the word I want to start with tonight, which is the idea of metaphor. Now, if you were here this morning, you would have heard Greg talk a bit about metaphor. And it's where I want us to begin tonight. Um, metaphors are wonderful things. And a metaphor really is trying to take one thing to help us understand another thing, right? Yeah? Uh, do you remember your school, school English? Anyone remember school English? What's the difference between a metaphor and a simile? Like or as for the, for the yes, for the simile, but the metaphor is like the is, yeah. Um, both are trying to do the same kind of thing, right? Which is to take one thing and help us to understand another thing. And the, the filled, poetry is filled with metaphor. But in fact, all of our language is filled with metaphor all of the time. Language itself is kind of, a, is, is entirely metaphorical because all of our words are just symbols for things. <laughs> um... <laughs> um but in particular, when we, when we try and explain things, uh, especially things that are difficult to understand, uh, one of our responses to that is to use metaphor. 
And so essentially you kind of got A and B. A, you're trying to understand. B is something everybody knows. So let's use B to explain A in some kind of way. Um, yeah? So if we think about this, this is kind of, this is a metaphor. Life is a roller coaster. Um, is there a song? Is there? Two songs. Mm. Powerful. It's a powerful metaphor. Uh, put into song. And, uh, which I obviously knew. And uh, what's the metaphor trying to um, say? Life has its ups and downs. Ups and downs? What is that? Is that a metaphor? Ups and downs is kind of a metaphor too, isn't it? Because we don't, do we, or do we literally mean, I mean, I suppose, especially if you work in an office block, life literally probably has ups and downs. But um, ups and downs itself is a metaphor, isn't it? So what's that language trying to describe? Bad, bad and good times, roughly, yeah. Um, now, any metaphor has like ways in which it works and then ways in which it really doesn't work, right? So every metaphor has some quite serious limitations. Uh, what would be the, some limitations of the metaphor roller coaster for life? Right. Life is not steel. Any others? It's not a set track. Okay. It doesn't matter how tall you are, which I'm greatly appreciative of. Yes. Love it. Um, as a short person, I uh, appreciate that comment. Um, yes, so there are ways in which the metaphor works, yes? There are also many ways in which the metaphor can be used quite badly. So if you were to over-literalise the metaphor in some kind of way and keep pushing it and pushing it and pushing it, you end up making the metaphor do things that it was never supposed to do. It's supposed to just immediately evoke the kind of language that straight away came out, which is life has its kind of ups and downs and good times and bad times. But if you sit there and go, life is a roller coaster, then we really, uh, I'm going to use this as the basis for my entire understanding of life. <laughs> so a roller coaster has power source, so what is the power source of life? Um, and then, yes, the tracks and, and how many loops does your life have? Mine has, I don't like going upside down. Um, but we can, you know, we can push the metaphor much further than it's supposed to go. And that can be an unhelpful usage of a metaphor, yeah? Which is kind of obvious to us with metaphors like this, because straight away we all know how the metaphor is supposed to be used. Uh, one of the things that happens to metaphors over time is that we can lose that in intuitive sense of how the metaphor is supposed to be used or not used, right? Um, think, think of a, let's, let's do this kind of little thought exercise together. So what I'd encourage you to do, maybe even with the, with the person or persons next to you, or, or, or around you, uh, and just have a little discussion about what you think might be a well-known metaphor for God. Because when it comes to talking about God, uh, the Bible is full of many, many metaphors. An overwhelming number, actually, of metaphors. Um, so think of a well-known one. Think of one maybe that, that people are quite familiar with. And then I want you to say, ask the question, what does it invite us to see, but also what are the limitations? Is that cool? So talk about that for like a couple of minutes. And then... Uh, We'll see where we get to.
All right, everybody. Let's um, let's see how we're going. Wrap up your profound wisdom. Uh, does anyone have a well-known metaphor for God that you were discussing that you'd be happy to share with the group? Yes. No. Father. Okay. Who else had father? Oh, look. If this was word feud. Oh, no. What's, no, what's that? Uh, family feud. That would, that would be ding. Something or other. Uh, okay. What does that metaphor invite us to see? Um, so we see there, straight away, there's like some, um, maybe some helpful ideas, perhaps around care or around something like that. But there's also uh, some other feelings that arise with the use of that metaphor. Does anyone else um, have something else to say about father in particular? Because a number of you were discussing it. You want to add to that? <laughs> right. So let's, let's play with that idea for a little bit. Um, and, <laughs> When it comes to the limitations of, if, if, we, if we take the, the, what it invites us to see in a positive sense is maybe the sense of protection or care or, or whatever it might be. But in terms of the limitations, if we push it too far, um, if we take it too literally, let's say, what kind of problems might we end up with? God is a man. Okay, we've got that, yes. And if we've got particularly difficult notions of the image of father. It really only works for people for whom father is a positive image, right? Uh, so if, yeah, if, if father brings to mind absence or abuse or violence or just distance or whatever it might be, things that aren't helpful, then that becomes a really, um, a not a great metaphor for you to be able to use to understand God. Um, yeah, right. So, so the image is used in particular in Scripture in a very patriarchal society where that carries a certain idea and sense with it. But um, there's some limitations to that around very much the, our notions of God and also the, the implied place of woman. I saw a hand back here. Did I? Sam. Cool. Um, I mean, there's a sense that even then when we're dealing with names, we, and naming God as Father, we are meaning something different from human father, still in that sense. Even, when we, even if we were to take that name on its terms, we aren't meaning, I mean, if we were to get very literal, um, uh, we're not implying that about God, even with that name, even if we're to take that name on its own terms, right? Um, cool. So whenever we deal with metaphor, we find ourselves in this conversation, right? Which is to say, well, how is this helpful to us? How does this give us insight into God and who God is? Um, but also, what is it not supposed to do? Um, or where does it start and stop? How do, how do we wrestle our way through understanding what this image is supposed to hold for us? Um, were there any others that were burning before we uh, move on, other than Father? Yes, one down the back. A consuming fire. Woo! Okay, tell us about this. No, I don't want to <laughs> well, it says God is a consuming fire. And so um, what does it invite us to see? It, if you want to take that literally, something that you're going to stay away from, probably, a consuming fire. <clears throat> so there are the limitations. But then 
perhaps if we are thinking about the way fire could purify, then we could think it's a good thing that it's going to hurt. So once again, we might want to stay away from that idea. <laughs> Unless it just happens to us. And God, you know, so yeah. It, Renee was like, is purification worth it if it's going to take full burning to get there? That's still what I would be invited to see, I think. Now, we could, we could, um, we could go forever because there's loads and loads and loads of metaphors and names, right? Uh, so there's uh, all the Jehovah's, the Jehovah's this is and the Jehovah's you know, Jairus and Jehovah Rafes and if you want to get stuck into those. Um, there's God as a mother hen, right? There's, uh, there's all sorts of images. There's God as breath. There's God as wind. Um, God as dove. Uh, we could go on and on and on with the metaphors for God, but with each one of them really, in a sense, if we were to take those, uh, if we were to use them badly, we end up doing damage to our view of God. Um, but there's a way in which maybe they can be used helpfully. Uh, the other thing that can happen with metaphors over time is that they can almost... You forget their metaphors at all. Uh, so think about, uh, think about who's a uh, Beyonce is a star. Now, um, star is a metaphor. I, I, I most likely traces its origins back to being used about famous people. I think in Chaucer, and then uh, into a bit of Shakespeare and then kind of found its way into common usage from there. Um, so what's the metaphor doing when it's been used about sort of famous people in some way, do you think? As a star. Bright? Elevated? Yeah, kind of almost transcendent or beyond or, you know. So these are the, the ideas that star is supposed to evoke when it's used as a metaphor. But if you use that metaphor for centuries and centuries and centuries, in the end it actually just becomes a word for the thing. So we've got Hollywood stars. And often people aren't thinking, oh, yes, sparkly, like a star in the sky. Um, you, it just actually becomes a word for, for celebrity, another word for celebrity, because it's become so associated with what it represents that it actually just becomes a word for what it represents. Does that make sense? So that happens with things like the word um, redeem, for example, in the Bible, which when it's first used... In fact, its usage isn't limited to New Testament language about Jesus. It's used in New Testament language about Jesus because it's already a word that's used elsewhere, which is about um, paying whatever a fee that was required to um, liberate a slave. So it's being used then to describe the work of Jesus in some kind of way as a metaphor of this liberation of a, or freedom brought to a slave. Um, but over time, actually, the word redeem or redemption, those words become things in themselves and we forget the metaphor even existed. And so, you, you know, I grew up here in Christian I'm being redeemed, uh, you know, by the blood of the lamb. Uh, <laughs> I'm sure if you turn on Daystar television, you'll hear that in American accent very powerfully. Um, but there's not necessarily a sense that people know that this is a metaphor that brings to mind particular imagery that stems from the ancient world. Uh, it's just now the, the word that they use to describe uh, that, that actually means the, the definition they've given to it 
and no longer recalls the metaphor that it was originally designed to evoke for people. Does that make sense to you? All right, you said it again. Yeah, makes sense. Um, so what we'd like to, to do in the, in, the, in the second part of tonight, and often formation will find its way to be kind of two halves, so, so we won't just talk our way through the entire evening without giving you a chance to take a breath. Uh, we'll talk, we'll have a little break, which is a chance to stand and stretch and breathe, uh, and then we'll come back and continue our conversation. Cool? So we're about to have a break is what I'm saying. Um, but when we come back, I want to look at two particular metaphors that are used in Scripture that then the church has used with varied effect um, since then how that's um, come into the church conversation and what that means for us in terms of understanding uh, what maybe some of the strengths of those metaphors are, but also what might be some of the limitations of those metaphors uh, that would be helpful to understand. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to talk particularly about ransom or rescue or redeem, and we're going to talk about sacrifice. Cool? So that's where we're going to go in the second part. So for now, we'll take a break just for uh, five minutes. Three to five minutes, three to five, a chance to have a stretch, uh, and then we'll carry on with the conversation. Thank you. Just so you know, our aim is to finish these nights around 6.30. Cool. So uh, don't, if you're sitting there going, oh my gosh, when is this going to stop? Um, you know, especially if we're in about, you know, once the evening wears on a little and the dim lights and the sultry tones. Uh, <laughs> we, sultry, is that right? I think so. Yeah. Dulcet. Dulcet is what I meant. What's sultry? Sensual. Eh. It works too. Um, if, uh, so, you know, if you're, if you're starting to wonder what our, what our plan is as we go along, our aim is to finish around 6.30 and then eat together. Cool? Um, so that's, that's what we're trying to do. So I mentioned just before we uh, paused there, that we're going to look at a couple of particular sets of metaphors, really, because there are, in the New Testament, when it comes to trying to describe the work of Jesus, and in particular, uh, the death and resurrection of Jesus, um, you can actually see, in some ways, the writers sort of searching for language to be able to put into words what it is that's taken place in this, in this event that surrounds Jesus. And so they are searching and groping, if you like, for the language and use all sorts of language didn't like groping either? Oh. <laughs> Sultry. There. <laughs> Look, I'm just going to... The gra- they're grasping? Is that better? Is it better that they grasp? Groping is not so good. Okay. Look, we're all learning together. Um, searching for language... Um, to capture something of that, what has gone on with, with Jesus. But even then, you can see them struggling to do it um, because this, the biblical text is written by people, real, real people. And, and you can sense their personality come through in that and you can see them looking for the right language to use uh, so that they can explain what they think has happened. So there are a number of images and metaphors. And the first set I just want to discuss are the ones related to the language of redeem and redemption, or ransom, or rescue, uh, liberation. Uh, there, are, there are a number that go in this kind of category of, if you like, if we were to categorize the images or metaphors, uh, there's a number that fit 
within this. And really, um, these were the most popular ways of, of understanding and describing the work of Jesus in the first few centuries after Jesus. So uh, among the early church and the early church thinkers and theologians, this was the set of metaphors they most often reached for to help explain and unpack the Jesus event. Uh, I think it's Mark who records this statement of Jesus where he says, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Uh, so there's this imagery again with uh, ransom and also with redemption, uh, imagery of slavery. And slavery itself holds a particular potent place in the imagination of ancient Israel. Because if you think back to the Old Testament, the central narrative really around which the whole thing pivots is the Exodus story, which is their journey out of slavery into freedom, yes, into liberation. So I think there's a particular potency to that image for them. Um, and sometimes uh, this collection of ideas is referred to as Christus Victor, um, which is really the idea of the victory of Christ, the, the fact that perhaps this death and resurrection resembles the, the way in which Jesus defeats evil powers, thereby uh, rescuing us from enslavement. Uh, so there you can see a beautiful image of the victorious ripped Jesus. <laughs> he does CrossFit. Uh, yeah. There's a lot of ripped Jesus art, eh? Um, now, what some of the early church fathers in particular, not a metaphor in this, well, no, even then it's a metaphor, the fathers of the church, which is again being used as a metaphor. Um, did was play around with this language of ransom in particular. And so they said, okay, let's think about ransom. What do you have when you think of uh, ransom from slavery? Who are the kind of, if you were to think about a ransom plot, what have you got going on? Who, what kind of characters do you have? Liam Meesom? <laughs> Taken? Yeah. There's an old Mel Gibson one too, eh? but we don't talk about Mel anymore, I don't think. <laughs> He was big time in the church when he did Passion of the Christ and then um, it went downhill after that. Uh, let's go with Liam Neeson, okay. Uh, what, kind of, what kind of characters do we have in a, in a ransom plot? Baddies? What do the baddies do? Kidnap. Kidnap somebody and then uh, maybe a child or maybe somebody rich. Uh, okay, who else do we have? Henchmen? Oh, they'll always... Um, nobody thinks about the henchmen, eh? No, nobody thinks about their families. Um, <laughs> so we have a hostage. We've got bad people. King Kong. Is he... Yeah, sure. He does. Naomi Watts. So. Um, there's money. Okay, so there's, there's some kind of payment. There's a hostage payment that's being asked for which is the ransom, isn't it? That's actually the ransom payment. And then there's someone who pays the payment in some kind. So uh, in playing with this imagery and metaphor in those first few centuries, uh, these thinkers and theologians said, well, okay, let's push the metaphor a little bit. Um, let's do what we shouldn't have done with life as a roller coaster, maybe. But uh, let's see where we go with this. And so they go, okay, well, who... Who are the baddies in the story then? Or who's the baddie? The devil or Satan? Yes? Yes. Right. 
And um, who are the hostages? Us. And who's and what's the payment? Jesus. Jesus' blood. That's right. Jesus. Um, okay. So um, Tertullian, who's one of the, the earliest kind of known theologians, wrote a, a book or, or a piece of work called Against Heresies. So he was a friendly guy. And uh, he said this, Christ ransomed man from the angels who rule the world. Here we're talking about sort of bad ones, bad devil and demons, uh, from the powers and spirits of wickedness and from the darkness of this world. Wonderful. So um, there's this this idea that essentially, and and, and what what they discussed and thought about, and there's some vari- there's variations on this theme, but essentially that humans, because they are, have sinned, done the naughty things, they have given up their rights to freedom and given Satan the right to take us captive. And Satan now has us captive. With me? And God is like, right, how am I going to get these people free? So God decides to pay the devil with Jesus' life. Essentially, it's like an exchange. Exchange program. Uh, I'll give you Jesus and you give me all the people. Generally speaking, I mean, there's, also, there's different nuances to this idea, but... That's the, that's the overarching kind of notion of it. I'll give you Jesus, you give me all the people, fair exchange. And the devil's like, yeah, I get Jesus. That's pretty amazing. Uh, I'll give up all the people. Now, uh, what Gregory, it was one of the Gregories in the fourth century, Nyssa, I think, who said, um, uh, well, what Satan didn't know was there was a bit of a, there was a, there's a sting in the tail. There was a trick, which is he didn't know that Jesus was going to rise again and he, the devil would be left with nothing. So God says, here, I'll give you Jesus. You give me the people. So Satan goes, okay, here are all the people. And then uh, Jesus rises again. Uh, I've seen this dramatised at youth conferences. I remember a youth pastor demonstrating Jesus beating up the devil with a microphone stand <laughs> in hell uh, and then dis- ascending with the keys. Right, um, that's awesome. So the, literally, yeah, that's right. Literally, yeah. Well, they actually were being. Well, the microphone stand was imagery, but the rest they did see pretty literally. Jesus went down into hell, um, fisty cuffs with with the devil, and came out with the keys to death and Hades, uh, victorious forevermore. Um, so that's interesting, isn't it? That's an interesting vibe. Um, in some ways, you can see here that the imagery, the metaphor, is supposed to do similar to what the life is a roller coaster metaphor did, which was immediately bring to mind certain ideas, which is like ups and downs and good and bad. The imagery of ransom or of rescue, redemption, it brings to mind freedom, brings to mind this experience of in some way being liberated from something that's, um, that we seem to get stuck in and mired in. Um, but that metaphor got worked and worked and worked and worked and worked until it meant all sorts of weird and wonderful and powerful things. Uh, so maybe there's a way in which the, the metaphor does work in inviting us to think about this, this sense that something is overcome 
in the Jesus story. And there is this uh, liberation and freedom that we talk about uh, that's connected to the Jesus story. But maybe uh, some of the problems with this, uh, you kind of have God and the devil sort of squaring off equal and opposite forces and sort of the way God wins is he has to go, right, how am I going to get them all? I've uh, got a good idea. Uh, I'll trick him into letting them go. Uh, and that's not necessarily uh, the kind of God we, we see talked about in, in Scripture. Or, um, that seems like a slightly weird scenario to be playing out. Um, so there are some challenges with pushing that metaphor too far or too far in, a, in certain directions. Um, you end up with God tricking as a way of saving, which is also a bit odd. Um, being a bit deceptive, a little misleading. Uh, so as the metaphor kept getting pushed and pushed and pushed, eventually some of the church theologians were like, oh, I do not think this is doing what we thought it should be doing. Maybe we need to change metaphors. That's kind of roughly a description of what's happening. So the next set to become um, most prominent were metaphors and images around sacrifice. So there's a guy by the name of Anselm of Canterbury, 11th century. Uh, and Anselm lived in a um, what we might call a feudal society. This is, we're going back to our sort of history of the West really here, aren't we? If I say feudal society, um, I guess I'm talking about the, the lords and the, the peasants. Serfs, I think they were called, weren't they? Serfs in, in Britain, maybe? Looking around for anyone who did history at like a university or something, but I just see a bunch of people taking my word for it. Um, you kind of, you have nobility, right? Um, maybe as that period of time goes on, you kind of have, you have the king and you have the knights and the lords and the nobility, and then you have the commoners and the peasant folk and, and so on. Um, now, one of the things in this kind of society in the 11th century is that if you were a serf or a peasant who served a particular noble or lord, um, you were supposed to honour them with your life. And if you did something to dishonour them, you would have to compensate them for that dishonour and in some way restore honour to them. So if you were a lord or a noble and one of your peasants or serfs, slaves, um, did something to dishonour you, that's embarrassing in front of everybody else, right? Because now you've been dishonoured. So how is that honour going to be restored to you? And so you need to make sure that that peasant or serf or slave or whoever it is uh, lives or does some kind of act or whatever it might be to essentially restore honour back to you so that your honour has been reassembled or restored. Yeah? So Anselm thought, well, maybe this is a bit like what's happening with Jesus. God... Uh, his is like a, a noble, really. God is like a lord. It's even one of the words we use. Uh, and his honour has been damaged by your dirty sins. Look at you. Um, and so our sins have dishonoured God. But because God is eternal, uh, there's no way we can restore God's honour. So we are in this debt we cannot pay uh, there's nothing we can give that will restore honour to God because we can't put God back together again, if you like. We can't restore his honour in the world ourselves because the damage done is to this eternal God who is all-powerful. So uh, in Anselm's book, Cur Deus Homo, which is why God became man, um, 
essentially the whole idea is then Jesus steps in as our sacrifice and gives his life to so that because Jesus is, is perfect and, and divine, Jesus' death can pay the price required to restore God's honour back to God. And now God is happy again. So that's Anselm. Uh, sometimes referred to as the satisfaction theory because God is obviously satisfied with the sacrifice of Jesus. Not satisfied with any of your sacrifices because they aren't good enough because you're not capable of sacrificing how much is needed to restore the damage that you've done. Okay? That's good news. Uh, Let's fast forward a few years, 500. And uh, we get a chap by the name of John. Oh, so on a damaged, on a restored. Yes, that's what I wanted to say about that. We fast forward 500 years-ish, uh, 400, 500, 400, uh, to John Calvin and the Reformation. So the Catholic Church, there's been the splinter away, this protest movement, the Protestants, uh, the Reformers. And John Calvin, French, lawyer. Okay, so Calvin is a lawyer. Here he is. And um, <laughs> so he takes this, this, this sacrifice imagery and he works it a little more. He says, oh, I don't think Anselm's quite got it. I'm not sure that honour is actually such a big deal in the New Testament. Is honour really the big thing that's at stake here? No, I think this is like a courtroom drama. This is like a courtroom situation. He's a lawyer. I guess it's classic, classic move. And... Um, so his notion is, right, okay, uh, this is often called the penal substitution theory. Um, there you go. Uh, <laughs> penal in terms of the kind of legal system and the penalty that's, uh, the sentence that's being passed. Substitution in the sense that Jesus' uh, life is substituted for ours in paying the penalty. So uh, in this imagery, uh, you need a judge, which is God. Okay, you need uh, the defendant who is, well, initially us. We are in the dock, so to speak. And the judge is also the uh, jury and the executioner. So, uh, <laughs> and the judge is, is very impressive. So impressive that when he looks at us and our sin, uh, Perhaps we could say it this way. Let's, let's work our way through the thing. This is kind of Kelvin's, a summary of, of, of Kelvin's way of thinking about it. Humans sin against God. We're in the courtroom. We are guilty before a holy and just God. So this God is very holy, which means he's so um, sort of pure that you, um, he can't tolerate being around dirtiness and naughtiness. So... Um, we are in the dock there on trial. Because God is just, when he sees the sin, he must pronounce judgment upon it to keep to his own character. And so God uh, says, look, the only deserving penalty is your death and eternal punishment. Um, however, Jesus steps in. No, Dad, no. Um, <laughs> Sorry. Uh, 
I don't mean to, like this is actually, this is the version I grew up with. This is like, so I feel like I can um, laugh at it a little bit just because it's, otherwise it um, makes me cry. Um, <laughs> Jesus steps in and says, right, I will die in their place. So even though they deserve death and eternal punishment, I will die in their place. Now, the reason God can accept this is because um, Jesus is, is particularly innocent. Um, Jesus is pure and innocent, which means that his blood can truly save us all. Um, and God is now allowed to forgive us because his justice has been fulfilled because he has poured out his wrath upon Jesus. Cool. Um, Kelvin also said that um, God also chooses whom this is for and whom it's not. So Kelvin says, and I've selected this bunch of people who will be able to receive that and then this bunch of people who will, who will essentially not. Right? And they shall be receiving of the penalty. So you have to you know, respond to this message um, so that you might receive forgiveness of God. What I'd love for you to do is to uh, talk to the person next to you again and say, how do you feel about that? Um, that so let's, let's focus in particular on this one and say, what, what is your response to that? Now, I don't want to predetermine your response because for, for many of us, that's like, because this became really the, the kind of standard evangelical vision of this is what Jesus has done for us. So I'm not wanting to say this is, you know, whatever. I'm, um, I'm just trying to put it up there and say, what, what is our response to that kind of message? Because uh, we uh, evangelicals in particular call this the good news of the gospel. Um, so how do you feel about it? Uh, are there things you like about it? Are there things that you struggle with? Uh, and if so, what are they? So have a little chat. Okay. Um, we'll come back together. Just for sake of time, lest we talk away the evening, uh, obviously we can continue conversation over dinner. You can think about this as you eat. Um, and this is, uh, this is the start of a conversation, right? So this is, this is something we're going to work our way through. Um, so if it all feels a bit like, oh, um, then that's okay. Because uh, we're, we're just going to walk our way through this over the coming times. If this is uh, your one and only shot at coming to formation, then we're just going to leave you here. Uh, uh, my hope is you'll be back. Um, and this is a kind of a how did we get here kind of conversation or, or yeah. Uh, what, what, what kind of thoughts and responses and feelings have arisen in your discussions of which there were plenty going on? Yeah. It actually, it is, it is because... Um, you realise how much context is playing into what becomes most prominent for people in the way they understand things, right? Yeah, who can immediately think of a few songs that, um, that resonate with some of this imagery? Um, and what I'm not wanting to do is discredit this entire tradition or, or trajectory, but just to unpick, and unpick it a little bit and, and uh, sort of poke it and prod it. I actually know uh, someone who at the moment who's doing a PhD with the University of Otago on the connections between... Um, penal substitution theory and um, mental health and damages to mental health in terms of, uh, and the fact that there are some connections between those two things, which I think is um, interesting exploration, right? Okay. Um, I just, 
I won't push it. <laughs> Sorry. When you first read this, the first thing you see is, for me, was in the first few lines, human sin and guilt. So nothing in Calvin's thinking suggests or is suggesting to us or is implying that there's any innocence or beauty or something about us that God finds slightly attractive. So we're already <laughs> on the backward foot, on the back foot. And then it seems to me that only other thing I'd say is that when you read this, and I have studied Calvin, um, and, and one of my problems with him is that his penalty seems to be overly severe for the crime. And that God is not just satisfied with killing us. He wants us to suffer. If I had really known, I would try to have another go. So the penalty in the crime thing, at least in our courts, we show some mercy. God seems very unmerciful in this kind of package. <laughs> and and the, and the logic for that, or at least partly, is that because you've essentially sinned against an eternal God, your punishment must be eternal. Um, but yes, um, it's pretty. It's a pretty. It's a high level of intensity to that uh, approach, isn't there? Uh, and interestingly, um, what does God ask of us in, in in terms of the way we should respond to one another? Uh, if someone wrongs you, what should you do? Forgive. Okay. Um, what about God? Because um, when God points that finger at us, there's three fingers pointing back at him. All right? Um, because why does God go around saying, forgive, forgive, forgive? Um, but then when it comes to him, he's like, well, look, I'm going to need some blood. And it... <laughs> And it better be innocent. Um, right? It's, there's something a bit strange about that. In fact, Jesus walks along, uh, finds a guy, and he's like, you're forgiven. Uh, didn't even ask for it. Didn't offer anything. Didn't sacrifice anything. Jesus hadn't died yet, so we couldn't sort of, unless we sort of, the way we try and get around that is, well, oh, Jesus knew he was going to die and his death would sort of retroactively pay the price in reverse. Um, <laughs> But Jesus actually just, like he says, your sins are forgiven. And then everyone's like, well, I don't think you can do that. And he says, well, so you know I can do it. And you can get up and walk as well because the guy couldn't walk. The, the walking was actually to affirm the, the outrageous act of forgiveness. Um, so if Jesus does that, then uh, how about the Father? How's, how's that guy going? Right? Yeah. Any other thoughts, feelings, responses? Yes. Cool. No, that's, that's good. Um, and I think that's really important. And that's a part of why I think uh, we're wanting to have this conversation. Because that's where we get to, I think. We're like, well, okay, there's certain sort of caricatures of this that are quite unhelpful, quite unhealthy, I think. We can look at it and go, well, hang on, the character of God doesn't seem to match up here. This doesn't seem to be the kind of God that I have come to know or believe in or that I see portrayed in Scripture. And yet... Some of this imagery and some of these ideas still do seem like they're present there. There is still, we, we have some issues. Um, and forgiveness, many people have experienced as, an, as, as a profoundly transformative um, existential experience with, with God and with one another. Uh, and Jesus' death and resurrection is somehow caught up in that whole mystery 
of reconciliation, of forgiveness, of, a, of transformation. Um, so what is going on here? I guess that's, that's like a really important question. And in many ways, that's, the, that's one of the big Christian questions, which I'm going to suggest isn't so black and white as to be able to say, well, it's exactly this, actually. Um, that's my next slide. It's the three points. Um, no, I don't have that slide because that's really what our, that's what our conversation is entering into over the next little while. Um, what I do want to say is uh, before, I'm just going to, Linda's going to come up and just give us a couple of um, notices before we close. Yes, it's time for that. Um, our invitation here is into some mystery. And it's into a long and ongoing conversation of the Christian church and the Christian tradition, of which there have been many uh, images and ideas and, and offerings. Um, and we want to engage in that conversation and engage in that process. So that we don't, we don't just go, oh, well, then... I don't see the point of all of that, but to actually to, to allow ourselves to be drawn deeper into that conversation, to let those metaphors actually hit us again in a new kind of way. I think one of the things we've done is we've plucked the metaphors out of the story and sort of treated them on their own over here. And so a part of what we're going to do over the next little while is go back into the story itself because it's, it's in the story itself that we are confronted again with maybe why those images make so much, made some level of sense for the people whom they spoke to. Um, that the Gospels themselves um, tell a story of a, of a man who's killed and who's raised um, for all sorts of reasons. Um, in Calvin's thinking, it's, the, it's, the, um, it's God who needs the death of Jesus, really. But if you read the Gospels, just take the Gospels on their own, then you realise that actually other people who really want the death of Jesus are um, political and religious powers, other ones who really want Jesus dead. So what does that have to offer us in the story? And how might Jesus' death weirdly and strangely actually be uh, a kind of redeeming sacrifice, but in a way maybe that's not what we expect? Cool? All right. That's a good opening then. Um, I'm going to pray, then I'm going to hand to Linda for a couple of thoughts before we finish. Um, God, we are reminded again of this profound mystery that we enter into uh, when we engage with you and with one another and with what it means to live. Um, My prayer is that this space um, would be one of safety where we're able to hold these ideas, hold our lives, hold our concepts of view, um, hold our history and our journey to this point, and to hold it and to be able to reflect upon it without feeling like it's coming apart in any direction, but that actually this is uh, something beautiful we are invited into, which is uh, a journey of sacred discovery, a journey of encountering maybe something fresh in the story, and one in which we would discover what you are like and what um, you are up to and 
what that means for us and how that might actually challenge us, transform us, invite us into something compelling and rich that makes sense in the land in which we live and in the world in which we live. Um, Would you draw us into that? In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Kia ora